Hello everybody, so we have a special episode today whereby we are joined by Tamara Tamimi who joins us from Jerusalem to speak on what's happening in, in Gaza. And she is actually a student with Queen's University in Belfast and she works between Belfast and um, her home. She joins me today to discuss um, a number of issues. I mean, it's very broad. <laughs> There's so many questions. Um, what we focus in on is really around international law and, you know, the interpretation of international law as it applies to the current aggression happening um, against Palestinians and also just her research and what she has uncovered. So it's a really interesting episode. Tamara was very kind um, and um, to give up her time. We really appreciate it. But this is what we want to look at over the next um, few months as well. We will have a, a, a little bit of a more focused series of podcasts as well to zoom in on some of the issues that we are um, talking about when it comes to international law. And we hope to have some um, lawyers, some academics, barristers, solicitors on to discuss um, what we are witnessing and what we are what's unfolding um, and get some legal perspective on it. So again, we'll probably be we'll, we'll be finishing off for Christmas. It's the 18th of December today. And I just want to say thank you to all of you for joining us over the last 12 months. Another great 12 months of activist, lawyer, of guests. And we're hoping to, again, we say this every year, change things up a little bit, add a little bit um, more to our platform and again any suggestions any feedback always welcome and I wish you all a happy and peaceful Christmas and New Year thank you for listening so today as part of our special series of Activist Lawyer I am delighted to be joined by Tamara Tamimi hi Tamara thank you for joining me via Zoom hi Tara how are you I am good hello to all of the listeners thank you so much and where are you joining us from today Tamara I'm joining you from the, from Jerusalem, Palestine. From, from Jerusalem, thank you so much. Anyway, just a little introduction for our listeners uh, before we get to speak to Tamara. So Tamara, as she said, is um, in Jerusalem. She is Palestinian, born in Jerusalem and holds an MA degree in human rights law from SOAS, University of London, and is currently pursuing her PhD from Queen's University Belfast in international law and the Palestine question. Tamara's research activity focuses on settler colonialism, transformative justice, forcible displacement, gender equality and aid effectiveness of overseas development assistance as part of policies of Western countries. Tamara has also published extensively in peer-reviewed journals and edited collections on aforementioned subjects including Development in Practice Journal, Al-Shabaka Palestinian Policy Network and with the University of Gottingen and University um, Queen's University in Belfast. Well, thank you so, so much for taking time out to join me this morning. It's a lovely, wet, drizzly morning here in Newry. And you and I have chatted a couple of times and I'm so grateful yeah. to have you on here and to have your, your expertise and your thoughts um, on what's happening and, and no better person. Um, before we get into um, some of our questions here that I know will focus on kind of legal matters that have been arising and legal questions, I just wanted to touch a little bit on your, your PhD title, which is really, really <laughs> interesting with Queen's University. And it is delivering justice for Palestinians through international law at, um, by Queens. And you obviously do it remotely or how is it working out for you, Tamara? Actually, I'm currently in Palestine. I came in April to uh, work 
on the fieldwork of my PhD, but most of the time I'm based in uh, Belfast. Oh, very good. For my PhD. But uh, speaking about uh, my PhD uh, thesis, like you said, delivering justice for Palestinians through international law, it continues between perceptions and uh, fulfillment. Uh, my PhD focuses on uh, what does justice mean for uh, Palestinians, hence the focus on transformative justice and particularly bottom-up transformative justice. What does justice mean for uh, Palestinians? And not just justice in the political dimension where we overly focus on uh, or the international community or Western states, they keep talking about a two-state solution. So we're going beyond the shape of the political solution and questioning whether the, whether Palestinians continue to be satisfied by what a two-state solution will uh, bring to them. Mm -hmm. As Palestinians, we move beyond that to focus on accountability, prosecution, and reparations. And what does this mean within that avenue, uh, basically. Of course, I cannot really cover everything that nope. Israel uh, does to Palestinians because, you know, God bless them, they are very creative in dispossessing and displacing uh, Palestinians mm -hmm. uh, here, so, uh, and in inflicting mass atrocities on Palestinians, of course. So I focus in my uh, PhD on Israel's settler colonial policy, which I argue uh, consists of three main components. The first one is colonization, the second one is displacement, and the third one is segregation uh, and domination, also known as apartheid. And all of which are underpinned by a narrative of entitlement that is based on turning a religion into an ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Basically, and, and it's a, a historical religious entitlement to the uh, to the land that became entangled with other forms of narrative to justify the dispossession of Palestinians since 1948. So basically, I asked Palestinians, what does justice mean to them vis-a-vis -vis Israeli historical uh, atrocities, but also current measures? Sure. And I question whether really the Palestinian Nakba has ended, Sarah, because while the Nakba and the uh, mass exodus of at least 720,000 Palestinians, destruction of 531 Palestinian villages, and the creation of the State of Israel over 78% of the land of historical Palestine. Has it really ended? Mm -hmm. Has Israel defined its borders, mm -hmm. Sarah? Has it, has it stopped? It's colonization and displacement of Palestinians. Maybe it adopted new ways and new methods, maybe more subtle ways than the mass exodus mm -hmm. of Palestinians. But the Nakba, we can, we can argue and see that the Nakba continues yeah. today uh -huh. until uh, now. So this is what I'm trying to do. Collate and, um, and see what does justice mean mm -hmm. for Palestinians and then subject these views to a legal and political analysis to see if the primary strategy employed by the Palestinian polity, internationalizing the Palestinian cause, if it is, how effective would it be in fulfilling Palestinian perceptions of justice? Excellent. And one last thing before we move on, because I could go on for hours about my PhD, 
But I wanted to include all groups of Palestinians. I wanted to challenge uh, the exclusion of Palestinians inside the Green Line, Palestinian citizens of Israel particularly, and also Palestinian refugees. So my field work covers Palestinians inside the Green Line, in Jerusalem, which is continuously being marginalized so that Palestinians in Jerusalem are rendered like inside the Green Line, forgotten Palestinians, and Palestinians in the remainder of the West Bank. And I take a subgroup of uh, and make sure that uh, within a, a subgroup of refugees in each of these areas, yeah. basically to make sure that we have refugee voices uh, represented in uh, our work. Excellent. Well, like you said, I mean, we could talk about your PhD um, for a long time, but we could also discuss this topic in full for days on end. I mean, it's just um, there's so much to go through. So our aim today, I guess, is to try and put as much into this podcast in a, in a succinct manner while covering some of the questions that I feel have been raised either by listeners, people that we engage with, myself as well, I have to say, and other lawyers um, who listen to the show and um, are interested in following what's happened from a legal perspective as well. Um, So just, I mean, we're 70, aren't we, day 73 into Israel's, this aggression on Palestinians, let's say, um, which is um, horrific to to even contemplate that that we're at this this stage. Um, But firstly, I suppose in relation to um, the current aggression, and this is just a very broad, vague question, but just from your research and your experience, what elements of international law are we looking at here? It's what we're hearing so often is, well, it's a breach of international law. Israel has committed war crimes. You know, so we just, I suppose, an overview as to what we're actually looking at in, in terms of humanitarian law, perhaps versus human rights law. It's certainly, uh, Sarah. Basically, uh, primarily, because this is, is in, in cases of military occupation and in times of armed conflict, the lex speciale uh, principle is automatically um, qualifies the applicability of international uh, humanitarian law. So um, um, there's no dispute about the applicability of international humanitarian law, even though if we're going to look slightly at the wider context, Israel has always disputed the applicability of international humanitarian law on uh, issues of technicality. When in the Geneva Conventions, it says uh, it mentions the issue of high contracting parties. They overfixate, of course, on a technical matter instead of the purpose and the object of the uh, of the convention. Basically, Israel has always argued that the Geneva Conventions do not apply because. Uh, of the status of the territory at the time it occupied it, which is that it didn't seize it from a high contracting party, mm-hmm. arguing that the, that the Jordanian uh, rule and Egyptian uh, Jordanian rule in the West Bank, including Jerusalem, and Egyptian rule in Gaza didn't render them high contracting parties because if you if the Geneva Conventions automatically apply, that would render rights. Jordan and Egypt that they are not entitled to. Of course, this is a very tiny technicality that does not that does not change the fact that Israel is occupying Palestinian uh, land mm-hmm. uh, here, and that irrespective of the state of of the 
previous status of the territory sovereignty is vested in the people and you are occupying the Palestinian people and thus there is a state of occupation in here that is undisputable. So the qualification of the applicability of international humanitarian law is something that is very clear, very, very clear cut, it's not disputable at all, uh, Sarah. Even if Israeli government, legislature, judiciary, academics, all of that, they've concocted very, um, uh, very elaborate pretext for its non-applicability, but it's not something that is, um, that we need to go into. It's already very much, uh, qualified by the entirety of the legal world and the international community. Mm -hmm. But we question, does human rights law apply? And in fact, it does apply, Sarah. We both apply simultaneously. Why? Because in humanitarian law and cases of military occupation, uh, occupation is meant to be temporary. And so, uh, and it's, it's not, and because sovereignty is vested in the people, the occupier should, um, administer the land to the benefit of the people under occupation instead of uh, dispossessing its people, um, um, expropriating its uh, uh, land, exploiting resources and all of uh, these uh, things. Also, it must be temporary. It cannot be a protracted occupation, a, a, a long-term occupation. And so humanitarian law does not have the provisions that would cover uh, and would provide protection over a long period of time and long term beyond northern hostilities, but where the occupation and settler colonialism is entrenched on a daily yeah. basis and affects life on a daily basis. So actually, human rights law uh, will complement humanitarian law in the protections it provides for people under occupation. Mm -hmm. In uh, here, and of course, this has been without going into a lot of details, but this has been reiterated several times by human rights bodies, such as the Human Rights Committee, which yeah. monitors uh, um, of the International Covenant of Civil, on Civil and Political Rights, it monitors uh, state, um, the commitment of states to their obligations under the ICCPR. But it's also been uh, um, uh, said time and again by the international by the committee on economic social and cultural rights and of course a very important decision is the 2004 uh, international court of justice on uh, the wall which is entitled uh, legal consequ consequences on the construction of a wall in the occupied palestinian territory it very clearly stated that Human rights law, including the ICCPR and International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, they apply simultaneously with the humanitarian law. Now, moving uh, to the last piece that is relevant to our uh, talk today, Sarah, yes, international criminal law does apply because um, the state of Palestine is party to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. First, we had accepted uh, its jurisdiction uh, and accepted to the uh, Rome Statute, and this has over time, over the years, although this is something that we can also talk about, but it has led to, the, to a preliminary examination, and after that, an investigation is opened in the case of uh, Palestine. So, international criminal law and the crimes it covers under the mandate of the Rome Statute, primarily aggression, genocide, 
war crimes and crimes against humanity. We can also talk and use this language to describe what is currently happening here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's always Palestinian, uh, not Palestinian, international refugee uh, law as exactly. more than half of the Palestinian population uh, are, uh, are refugees, whether internally displaced over the land of historical Palestine or in the diaspora. Uh -huh. yes. So this is the body of law that is applicable uh -huh. here and that we will be making reference to in this yeah. uh, Absolutely. Well, thank you for that answer. Um, yeah, so we'll return, I suppose, to the effectiveness and the selective application of international law, if we can call it that. But just going back, I suppose, a little bit out of the legal uh, speak and into maybe the more historical context. I mean, your um, PhD and your research and your work in human rights predates this 7th of October, the Hamas attack, which is, I mean, what we're party to here tomorrow is I mean it's very much still prevalent within you know mainstream media that the 7th of October is the key date that we have to think about now I'm not going to um, insult anybody's intelligence by saying we know that historically that this has been going on for 75 plus years I'm not going to break it down I, I, I'm no expert on the situation but just I mean counting down the clock to this uh, current aggression which really um, surpasses anything you know that we have seen in our lifetime um, which is truly atrocious I mean can can we say I mean looking back you've mentioned there the Nakba in 1948 as well and there's so many dates that we could look at the 2007 the illegal military siege of Gaza the 2021 recent attacks um, on Gaza to name but a few but just since I suppose we're moving into more the, the political sphere here as well since the recent or the current Israeli government so the right wing government came to power um, it seems to be in the last 12 months um, their actions have been ramping up and you did mention that there are more subtle tactics in place but there are also very unsubtle um, ways no. of um, you know um, escalating the displacement dispossession the violent repression of Palestinians across Israel the West Bank you know Jerusalem so just in terms of you know and that's not going to change in terms of your your work and your PhD I mean you'll probably be looking at it in a, a different angle now in terms of the international law and its application but what you know, can you comment on maybe what you've seen more so in recent times that predate the, the 7th of October date? And what's your opinion on all of that? Yes, yes, certainly, Sarah. This is a very important matter because um, uh, actually, like the framing of what is happening now and starting the clock on the 7th of October is both ridiculous and reductionist, Sarah. It's really that way. We can, mm -hmm. uh, 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 some people, Israel has successfully convinced people that this is a complex matter. It's not a complex matter, basically. Um, it, it, it's, it's very simple. It's maximizing the acquisition of land with the least percentage of Palestinians on it. And to that end, Israel employs, um, it confiscates land and denies Palestinians access to the land and to use that land. It decreases the number of Palestinians through mm -hmm. uh, displacement, many different forms of displacement, some more pronounced, like you said, we'll get to that in a bit, some more subtle mm -hmm. here, and it increases the number of Israelis, basically through settlement construction. It's very simple here. But how Israel has convinced the people in the world that it's too complex, some people refuse 
to trace this back to its original roots, to, to the Palestinian Nakba. Because like I said, Sarah, the Nakba is not a historical event. It never ended. It yeah. continues. The Nakba was intended to capture the maximum of Palestinian land presence and expel as many Palestinians possible in order to reduce their percentage as much as possible. We continue to see this happening until today, Sarah. Basically, after the Nakba, Israel imposed a military rule on the some 150-160,000 Palestinians who remain within the borders of, of, the newly, um, of the newly established state through this military rule without going into the details because it's a long matter. And here, Israel has exploited legal pluralism. It enacted laws to dispossess Palestinians of their property. And secondly, they exploited the pluralistic legal system that was in place, which uh, um, uh, included Ottoman laws and British laws. And with Israeli laws, they managed to expropriate over 90% mm -hmm. of the Palestinian land, basically. And this continued until the end of 1967. There was a great period of lack of Israeli military rule over any Palestinians for six months. How very generous of them that they didn't subject Palestinians to military rule for six months. And then after that, there was the occupation of the remainder of the land of Palestine. And with that occupation, the cycle of settler colonialism and that trajectory continued. Mm -hmm. Basically, through another mass exodus of 300,000 Palestinians, at least in the 1967 mm -hmm. war, most of them were already refugees. They were made refugees yet another time. Sarah. Then, through settlement expansion, which started from only a mere month, three or four months after the occupation of the remainder of the land of historical Palestine. Of course, that also included the annexation of Jerusalem. And then we've seen how they have used more subtle ways to displace Palestinians. Home demolition, evicting Palestinians from their home and implanting settlers. So this is a, like it's heading two birds with one stone by removing Palestinians and increasing the number of settlers. Revocation of residency from Jerusalem, imposition of restrictions on the registration of newborns, and how this is very much connected to the lack of family unification, also which lies at the heart of the system of apartheid that Israel imposes in here. So, th that may sound very complex. It's not complex. What I'm saying is that Israel wants to seize maximum land and reduce the number of Palestinians that as much as possible. It's a settler colonial uh, policy at its heart. It had continued for the last 75 years. So when you see in Western media invoking the right to self-defense of Israel, which I'll get to in a bit, basically, and talking about Palestinian aggression, let me ask you something, Sarah, basically. Palestinians for the last 75 years have used a myriad of strategies non-violent resistance. Every kind of strategy that is there in the book. We have tried bilateral negotiations. We have tried internationalizing the Palestinian cause. We have tried civil disobedience and popular resistance. We have tried boycott movement, Sarah. We even sat on the tables. We've been sitting on the negotiations table for the last 30 years and continue to call 
for negotiations based on the two-state solution, on the pr parameters of the two-state solution. People do not understand, actually, that the two-state solution is actually a Palestinian concession. It's not a Palestinian demand. Yeah. And yet, not, uh, all of these strategies that, that we have adopted, Sarah, they were compromised by Israel and by its Western allies in a very clear case of support by the settler colony to the settler colony, which can be traced back historically for a very long time, Sarah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we see that Palestinians have tried everything. They have made all of the concessions that were possible. Trump, President Trump, did not realize that the Oslo efforts in 1993 were actually the deal of the century. Mm -hmm. Palestinians cannot make more concessions than that. And what is Israel's response? They continue to elect more right-wing governments, more radical governments. I cannot even believe, I remember I saw something that I wrote 10 years ago and talked about how this is the most radical government in Israel's history. It looks like a, it looks like a, a very sweet kitten now when we think about Israeli government mm -hmm. 10 years ago, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. And this actual government, you made reference to it, Sarah. Basically, their audacity has gotten to a place, Sarah, where they spell out Israeli policy very clearly. They spell it out and say, and this is at the, at the tongue of Israel's finance minister, a very French figure, but also a very powerful figure in the Israeli government, because, um, because he, th these right-wing fringe groups, they have the power to topple this government essentially mm -hmm. uh, here. He said it. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a settler, by the way. He yeah. lives in an illegal uh, settlement in the West Bank, Betalal uh, Smotrich. Mm -hmm. uh, same applies to the Minister of National Security, Itamar Ben-Gvir, also lives in an illegal mm -hmm. uh, settlement. Mm -hmm. So he said it very clearly. Palestinians have three options. Option number one is that they leave. Option number two is that we kill them. And option number three is that those who stay will become our servants. So he's basically telling our Israel, existing Israeli policy. I'm not saying that they created that. No, it's yeah. been going on for 75 years. But he has the audacity to actually spell it out, to say Palestinians will either be displaced, ethnically cleansed, ex uh, um, uh, um, and uh, removed mm -hmm. from the land, either they will be exterminated and murdered, by Israelis, or they will be subjected to a system of apartheid. All of them exist now. Yeah. But you see that audacity because of the impunity mm -hmm. that Israel enjoys, the state of exception that Israel yeah. is treated exactly. uh, with, uh, Sarah. So my question to you, what's a proportionate Palestinian response to that? Mm -hmm. What's a proportionate Palestinian response? Well, Don't Palestinians have a right yeah. to self-defense? Basically, we're not only just entitled to self-defense, we're entitled to all forms mm -hmm. of resistance, Sarah, including armed resistance. Let's not be apologetic about no. our rights and our entitlement. They're prescribed. We have a right yeah. to... Exactly. Yes. It's, it's a right that is guaranteed to us under international law. With all of the problems of international law, this is not a disputed matter. 
Mm-hmm. We have a right to all forms of resistance, mm-hmm. including armed resistance. Mm-hmm. And this is yes. uh, clear, obviously, from your work and um, clear in law, I guess, which is um, you know yes. the main thing. But it's not really spoken about, Tamara. To be perfectly honest with no. you, um, but what I is know. spoken about is um, Israel's defence when it comes to um, this situation, which is that they have a right under international law. Let's stick with that to defend itself, and um, Israel, not just Israel, but Israel and its support will or have been using this, um, you know, to justify their actions, however excessive, however indiscriminate. So what's your response to um, their justification under international law? Sarah, my response is let's not fixate on the details of how many Palestinians were indiscriminately murdered by Israel. Let's not fixate on the details. Mm-hmm. This is not a matter of details. It's a matter of principle. Mm-hmm. Basically, I'll continue this question where I left off, basically. It is us who has a right to self-defense against the most fascist right-wing Israeli government in its history. It's genocidal government in here. It is us who have a right to self-defense. Not them, basically. And what I will say is because we have an inherent right to self-defense and resistance, including armed resistance, basically, this renders Israel in the complete opposite direction, basically. Um, because it is very clear, Sarah, and this is well established, this is well established. Like you said, Western countries and Western allies and the support of the settler colony to the settler colony, it entails that Israel does, uh, that that they do not say these things. But I will start from the end and tell you that the advisory of the opinion of the International Court of Justice on the wall in 2004, if you go to paragraph 139, it says Israel does not have a right to self-defense for any attacks that emanate from occupied territory. I'll bring you to the punch, Sarah. And Israel's immediate response will be, Gaza is not occupied. We, 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 uh, we withdrew in 2005. Mm-hmm. I'll challenge that again, Sarah, and say, no, Gaza is occupied. Because you didn't withdraw and just evacuate the settlement and remove your soldiers and left. You redeployed your settlers and your soldiers to the periphery of Gaza. You continue to control every aspect of life of Gaza. You control the land. You control the, the, the sky. You control the sea. You control who enters and what enters, who leaves and what leaves, basically. You have suffocated Gaza in a blockade that is unbelievable. The cruelty has reached a place, Sarah, when it comes mm-hmm. to the occupation of Gaza, that they measure how much food needs to get in in order to prevent starvation. But the, um, the but more than fifty percent, Sarah, of people in Gaza are food insecure. This is so basic, very basic. People should not be hungry. Yeah. It's very basic, mm-hmm. basic. Yeah. But so, this is one part of it. But another less known part, and this is a good opportunity to highlight it here. Israel also controls the border between Gaza, between Palestine and the within within Gaza with with Egypt. If we look at the Philadelphia route, which was signed between Israel and Egypt between 2005, we see that uh, 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 Egypt has relinquished control over that border, and Israel also exercises effective control through um, Egyptian statesmen 
and personal in here, but it, but Israel has an ultimate decision even on their path, crossing between Palestine and Egypt, uh, Sarah, in here. So if we qualify that Gaza is occupied, then we reference the International Court of Justice Advisory Opinion, paragraph 139, which qualifies that Israel doesn't have a right to self-defense. But let me touch on another matter that you've mentioned, how the, Israel, the, how the Western world does not talk about these things. And I will tell you one thing, the Western world is very much complicit with Israel in its propaganda machine. And allow me to explain uh, here, uh, Sarah. Israel, what it has done essentially is that it has exploited a very reductionist form of politics of victimhood, Sarah. It has portrayed itself as the ultimate victim and has continuously capitalized on, uh, on European anti-Semitism, which culminated with the heinousness and horrendousness of the Holocaust in here, portraying itself as the eternal victim, basically, here. But what we, uh, the reductionist part of this setup is that, is that, um, if you are, is that the portrayal of the, if you are a victim, you cannot be a perpetrator. You are either one or the other, basically. And Israel, by conveying this image, on entrenching this, this image of victimhood, they have effectively enabled or excluded themselves from being a perpetrator. And so as the victim of anti-Semitism, basically, they have a right self-defense and automatically what do they do Sarah automatically that puts Palestinians in the bas basket of being the perpetrator the violent perpetrator basically the one that will commit barbaric acts under uh, against poor Israel haven't Israelis suffered enough this is all of the picture that we see being portrayed in the Western media. Of course, by doing this and by do, by employing this reductionist approach, Sarah, to the politics of victimhood, it automatically demonizes Palestinians, which can be taken one step further in order to dehumanize Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the kind of language used yeah. by Israeli officials. Uh, So-called defense minister, I don't know what's defensive about about what they do. He's, he's an occupation or, or an aggression minister. You have the land, basically. Called Palestinians, human animals. Yeah. Another minister called Palestinians, he called us subhuman. Mm -hmm. um, the Israeli president, who's supposed to be a moderate, by the way. This man is considered a moderate, who said that there are no innocents yeah. in Gaza, yeah. basically. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, compared our children, he's called them ch children of darkness and juxtaposed yeah. them and against Israel's children of lies mm -hmm. here. Invoked also a Malayic, the biblical uh, story that called for the genocide of everyone, echoing what uh, the Israeli president has said. Mm -hmm. And basically, Sarah, one last thing, because I know I went on for a long time, I apologize. Mm -hmm. But one last thing, when we see this kind of language used, Sarah, it conditions the mind of the international public opinion to accept mass atrocities. Mm -hmm. And we saw that in Iraq, one million murdered. We saw that in Rwanda, one million murdered also in three months. 
And perhaps may, um, the most famous example of this is the Holocaust, basically. Six million Jews killed. Millions of other minorities that are also usually forgotten because Israeli propaganda has managed to, um, to assert the Holocaust and use it for its own uh, purposes. But let's not forget that there were other minorities who were described by such language and there were, that were also annihilated in the Holocaust. Um, and I, I guess, well, thank you for that answer. And I mean, what you're saying, I suppose, dangerously feeds into perhaps the international law aspect as well in the, in the sense that perhaps we're seeing a selective um, application of international law when it comes to uh, Israel. Um, in terms of even naming the conflict, let's let's say that that's being prescribed by by the media here and by Western governments, and also in respect of the actual mounting attacks on every aspect of Palestinian life, and how if this was happening anywhere else, uh, perhaps Western governments and in particular America, who've been very much heavily involved in how this whole situation has been playing out, would strongly condemn for example, the killing of journalists who are protected under international law. But there are, we could go on all day and talk about, you know, um, what's been happening in terms of the rules of engagement, attacking attacking innocent civilians, you know, in the effort to root out and, and kill Hamas, decimating infrastructure, attacking schools, hospitals, mosques, and now churches as well, attacking and killing aid workers, UN staff, medical staff, and of course, as I just mentioned, journalists. Um, any other time, I mean, I'm just looking back to um, Paris a number of years ago when journalists had been targeted and killed. I think there were six journalists um, and the global leaders got together in a huge show of solidarity, um, you know, travelled to France and rightly so to condemn, you know, the killing of journalists, which is fundamental to, you know, our freedom of expression in terms of reporting what's happening. And as I said, they're protected under international law. We're not seeing any of that discussion taking place now when we're over 90 journalists who have been killed um, in the past three months and probably a lot more before that. So not just focusing on journalists, though, just on the other areas that I mentioned there. I mean, is this how do we deal with this or talk with these attacks and these atrocities in terms of international law when they're simply allowed to continue without comment? Well, I think, before I get into that, there is something that I would like to touch on, uh, Sarah, mm-hmm. basically. We saw, b- basically, Sarah, since we have nullified Israel's right to self-defense mm-hmm. here in our conversation, my starting point would be is that what Israel is committing in Gaza is an assault. It's an aggression, basically. This will be the starting point here. It's uh, it's an aggression and an assault, basically, that comes with a genocidal uh, intent. I'm not an expert on genocide. It's not my area of particular research. Mm-hmm. So I will just reference key experts on the matter. Uh, Raz uh, Sigal, who wrote that this is a textbook case of genocide. Omar Bertop, whose line of thought has evolved over the past two months to make the case for uh, genocide and the center of, uh, for constitutional rights, just to name a few. It has constituents that what Israel's genocidal war 
or assault, basically, has war crimes constitute into it and crimes against humanity. So basically, all of you said the targeting of civilians, the targeting of civilian infrastructure, mosques, churches, UN facilities, hospitals, schools, all of that. All of these, they are war crimes. There's crimes against humanity of displacement. Almost now, two million Palestinians in Gaza are internally displaced. That's a crime against humanity uh, that is being purported uh, here. Having said this, it's important, Sarah, to know that there are certain problematic terminologies that have been used. It's been said that this is a conflict. It's not a conflict. There's nothing disputed about it. There's nothing disputable about it. It's very clear cut. Israelis, Jewish scholars, have called it a genocide, a genocidal war, have connected it to settler colonialism. It's not a matter of dispute. It's very clear cut. So conflict does not work, to use the word conflict. Mm -hmm. Does not work to call it a war, Sarah, because a war supposes symmetry between the two sides. There is no symmetry between Israel and the Palestinian people. And I say the Palestinian people, Sarah. Why? Because it takes me to the last point, the last and perhaps the most problematic part that has been used. Israel-Hamas war. This is not a war by Israel, between Israel yeah. and Hamas, basically. This is a war by Israel against the Palestinian people, where there is massive asymmetry. So we cannot call it a war in here. And you'll ask me, why it is a case of war against Palestinians? Because I will tell you that the over 18,000 Palestinians killed, Sarah, most of them are Palestinian civilians. 70% of the 18,000 killed are children and women. We don't know how many of the men are also civilians, but that, these are massive numbers. We see, like I said, almost 2 million internally displaced yeah. in Gaza. Yesterday, I saw something on social media, Sarah. It really was horrific for me because we see Israeli companies now selling property, I saw it. selling the land and property in the north of Gaza, yeah. basically. So this is what I'm trying to say, Sarah. This is a war by Israel. This is an aggression by Israel against the Palestinian people. They're, uh, they're exploiting, as they always did, uh, Sarah, the events of October the 7th in order to advance their settler colonial endeavors. They've already started selling the land. They keep talking in their letters that, that Egypt needs to play ball. What does Egypt needs to play ball mean? It means it needs to open the, the Rafah crossing so that another mass accident yeah. of Palestinian takes place. Very similar to what we saw in the Palestinian Nakba. A repetition of the Nakba 75 years on. Ironically, 80% of the Palestinians in Gaza are refugees from that time, basically. So they want to be made refugees yet another time. Yeah. Sorry. Mm -hmm. But also, this is on Gaza, the situation in Gaza. But let's take a closer look about how Israel is advancing its settler colonial endeavors in the West Bank. We see daily incursions, Sarah. Over 200 Palestinians have been killed since October 7th. The number had exceeded the number of Palestinians killed in the first nine months 
for 2023. Noting that 2023 is the bloodiest pal year for Palestinians in over 20 years. So imagine, over 200 killed in the first nine months. That's the bloodiest year. In 70 days, that number has the, the number killed between October 7th and today has exceeded what has happened, uh, the, the number in the first nine months, which is considered the bloodiest year. Over 15, the, the, the attacks on Palestinian refugee camps, the carpet, uh, uh, we see something similar to the carpet bombing in Gaza, in Jenin refugee camp, yeah. in Turkaram, basically, both in Norsham and Turkaram refugee camp. Today, this morning, Sarah, the 18th of December, for the benefit of our uh, listeners, five Palestinians killed in, uh, in Farah refugee camp, south of Tobas, north of Nablus, basically, here. This is only to name a few. So, in 70 days, more people were killed than in the first nine months, which is the bloodiest year in, 20, in over 20 years. Uh, here, this is point number one. Uh, 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 point number two that I will make is the displacement of Palestinians. Over 1,500 Palestinians have been displaced, Bedouin, harder communities, in the central West Bank and in the south of Hebron. Basically, they are called the South Hebron Hills. Uh, in here, over 1,500 have been displaced through secular violence and the Israeli army. At a certain stage, also, you could see maps cropping up on social media. And this is a very clear Israeli strategy, where they start to uh, create a conducive environment through unofficial accounts of them on social media, basically. Maps coming out, uh, up on social media, Sarah, telling you, if you are a Palestinian in this governorate, your refugee camp in Jordan will be waiting for you here. Mm -hmm. Make your way there through the safe passages that we will erect. Yeah. for you. If this is not ethnic landing, if this is not transmogronism, I don't know what else. But let's call it state. This is not a conflict. This is not a war. This is not an aggression or a conflict between Hamas and Israel. This is an Israeli aggression on Palestinians to advance the dispossession of Palestinians and create another wave of Palestinian refugees to take over mm -hmm. this land. It's very clear cut. It's not yeah. something that is disputable in here. And again, I reiterate, this within this genocide, there are war crimes being committed and crimes against humanity, but also to be mindful of the message that we are conveying to your uh, listeners, let's not forget of situating Gaza and, this, and what's happening now in Gaza within the wider framework. The siege on Gaza, which is a form of apartheid and persecution, and there's increasing analysis and argumentation that it actually amounts to a genocide because it is designed to render life in Gaza mm -hmm. uninhabitable. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean just reflecting back on what we were talking about initially around international law and the various protections that are offered. I mean, 
Palestinians, um, people all around the world, I, I suppose as well, who weren't familiar with the operations of, you know, what protections are in place. We mentioned um, a few groups there that are obviously, it's, it's <laughs> when you look at the numbers, um, the mounting deaths and uh, casualties, it seems to be that they've absolutely been abandoned, um, you know, uh, by the Western world, by the global north and by international law itself. Um, but looking at the UN, I, I suppose, and in particular, the UN Security Council, with a lot of people may not have been familiar with um, the mechanism and the workings, the internal workings of that, but have, um, I suppose, expressed deep shock and infuriation around the way the veto system in particular works. And I am sure Palestinians who have been looking at, you know, who's who's coming to help, what, what level of protection are we being offered? I'm wondering how they view international law in general now anyway and um, its effectiveness. But I suppose I want to ask you that question. Um, all of it's open out in the air now as to how it works. How fit for purpose is this system, is the UN, when it comes to peace and security in today's world? I mean, it was established decades ago. Are you seeing it as a, um, you know, something that can be relied on or, I mean, is it just a matter of throwing it out the window? It's been absolutely ineffective. Um, uh, thank you, Sarah. This is a very important question. I think the problem, one of the main problems, I don't want to say it's the only problem, but it's one of the biggest problems is the concentration of so much power into the Security Council, which is inherently an undemocratic body, uh, Sarah. When five States have the power to nullify the decision of over 190 states that's inherently non, uh, 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 not democratic. When these, because when the pretext for this is that these are mandated with maintaining peace and security, well, they have failed yeah. in doing that, particularly considering their opposing interests with uh, one another. But putting that aside, because that's not really relevant to what we're talking about now. If these are the supreme states, then we again see, Sarah, that despite there being a very clear statement in the UN Charter saying that all nations and all states are uh, are equal and have uh, sovereign uh, equality and all of these things. It reminds me of George Orwell's Animal Farm mm. when he said all animals are equal but some animals are more equal. It seems that's the case mm -hmm. with, the, you know, with how the UN is structured. When five powers uh, are, uh, are ac accorded with supremacy, quote-unquote, which confers inferiority on the rest, on the rest, uh, Sarah, mm -hmm. to nullify the decision of over a, a, a hundred and ninety states, perhaps because they are primitive, because perhaps because they are not advanced enough, perhaps because they they, they, they need to be brought up to the level of civilization yeah. of the Western uh, world, basically. So that's number one. There's a problem with the United Nations Security Council, especially when there is an inherent interest and alliance between Israel and the United States of America. The United States of America has used the veto almost 50 times, Sarah, since 1972 until today to shield Israel from, perhaps now with the latest vetoes on Gaza, it has surpassed mm -hmm. the 50 times. Benchmark to uh, shield Israel from criticism, censor, and 
accountability, uh, Sarah. So yes, there's a very big problem with the United Nations Security Council. There's a structural problem in the UN where the Security Council so enjoys so much power. Since the beginning of the assault on Gaza and uh, in October 7th, uh, Sarah, basically, we have seen how how many times the United Nations General Assembly had made statements and voted for resolutions under the umbrella of Uniting for Peace in order to shame the Security Council on its inaction in stopping this genocide that is being perpetrated. We saw the Secretary General being very vocal. He yeah. said something that is very simple, Sarah that the October 7th attacks didn't happen in a vacuum. The sheer amount of bullying yeah. and attacks by Israel against the Secretary General have been astounding. Mm -hmm. Yet again, I see that we have the international public opinion. Yeah. And these are the real international public opinion. The Global South. The undeveloped world, basically, what they call them in order to justify their continuing hegemony, their continuing supremacy. These are the ones who are on the right side of history. If there's any hope on that, basically, we it is through them, yeah. not through the Security Council. But having said this, Sarah, there's another thing that I would like to say, is that essentially how this so-called international community, the Western States, there is the double standard in the interpretation of international law. Please don't understand me wrong, Sarah. Hmm. I am wholeheartedly understanding the plight of Ukrainians. No one is better suited to understand what Ukrainians are going through than me and my people, yeah. Sarah. But for me, the, the double standards in interpretation and enforcement is disgusting mm -hmm. for me. It is. Ukrainian refugees we saw the, the Western media talking about Ukrainian refugees being white and blonde and with blue eyes and that they are similar to Europeans and that they should be brought in and welcomed. Mm -hmm. Ukrainian refugees are not worth more than my refugees or Syrian mm -hmm. refugees who were made refugees for a large part because of Western uh, intervention mm -hmm. in uh, Syria under the flagship of humanitarian intervention. There is a very clear double standard in the invoking of humanitarian intervention, in the interpreting the right to self-defense, in enforcing international law. Look at the International Criminal Court, Sarah. The Palestinian investigation has been, and Palestine's journey within the avenues of international criminal justice have started since 2009. It was only until 2015 that an examination was opened. It was only until uh, a preliminary examination. It was only until 2021 until an investigation was opened into Palestine. And then you get a new uh, general prosecutor in the International Criminal Court that deprioritizes the investigation of Palestine. There's a genocide being perpetrated in Gaza and you do not see him attending to this and allocating the necessary resources as, uh, as fast as he did in the case of Ukraine. Again, I'm not yeah. saying that there shouldn't be a swift response on Ukraine, but what I am saying is that Palestine also warrants hmm. a swift response, especially that this has been going on for 75 years. Yeah.
So it seems to me, Sarah, that the sovereign equality of people and nations is more of a slogan. Mm-hmm. Because it seems that in practice, some countries and nations are more equal than exactly. others for me when it comes to the United Nations. I think that's becoming clear. But I suppose in the last vote as well, um, you know, the majority did support a ceasefire and a permanent ceasefire. Um, and it must be so frustrating that the mood, I guess, um, and how maybe Palestinians are, are looking to that, um, the mood of the international community, does that offer any hope? Um, you know, when we look at the double standards that you mentioned there, um, you know, the selective nature of how the international law mechanisms are applied, it's pretty grim, it's pretty pretty depressing. But I suppose, what are your views and what are your thoughts on accountability when it comes to that? I mean, have you lost all hope? or is there something there that can be done do you feel any way that people will be held um, importantly to account and to justice Sarah we Palestinians we don't lose hope because if they if we lose hope Israel wins mm-hmm. we ha- we hold on to hope in all of its forms and what we saw since October 7th despite how 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 painful seeing these atrocities being committed no matter how long Israel has concocted this propaganda line of victimhood, of demonization of Palestinians, of dehumanization, we saw how they were unable to condition the international public opinion to accept mass atrocities against Palestinians. 73 days on the most recent assault on Gaza, because Gaza is in a state of perpetual assault. Palestinians are in a state yeah. of perpetual assault. But for the purposes of this uh, of this uh, discussion, Sarah, from in 73 days on the latest assault on Gaza, we see how the massive demonstrations, Sarah, in places that, in countries that are in, 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 in London, the in 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 Dublin, in Paris, in Berlin, in uh, in in Spain, in in Barcelona, in in uh, in Madrid, in all of these countries, we see these are the real voices of the free world, not their countries, mm-hmm. not their states, the settler colony that supports the settler colony, and they've continued, Sarah. Firstly, they started despite the restrictions imposed on free speech and freedom of assembly by supposedly the free world, you know, the democratic advanced world. Firstly, they crack down on any act of Palestinian solidarity. That's number one. We saw the massiveness of the demonstration. It filled my heart with so so many feelings when I saw that demonstration, Sarah, in London, over one million, over one yeah. million in London. Huge, yeah. It's, it still touches me now deeply, now when I remember the images when I saw that. It touches me when I see Palestinian flags, Sarah, being raised in many different places in the world. Israel has not been successful in conditioning these free minds, this free world, to accept mass atrocities against Palestinians. And so that gives me hope, Sarah. Mm-hmm. It gives me hope to see how much the boycott movement has advanced in the last 73 days. Mm-hmm. How many people have uh, the, 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 the economic harm that was, uh, that, that was sustained by complicit companies yeah. such as McDonald's and Burger King and Starbucks and all of these 
atrocious companies who not only abuse the rights of Palestinians but are also problematic on many other uh, on many other levels in terms of workers' uh, rights, yeah. in terms of their uh, the envir- their contribution to uh, environmental degradation, all of these things. Mm-hmm. So, what I say, Sarah, is that it's important to continue. These these actions give me hope that not only they happen, but they continue 73 days on. Yeah. What and what I call people to do to bring about justice for Palestinians. Write to your MPs. Continue to demonstrate. It makes a difference. We saw a shift yeah. in the attitudes of these states. For civil society, lobbying your government so that they take a stronger stance on Palestine in the International Criminal Court, in the Assembly of State Parties to, to advance the investigation of Palestine. Boycott Israeli products and companies that are complicit in the Israeli aggression and genocide and colonization of, uh, Palestine, uh, of Palestine. Follow the publications that are issued and the uh, awareness raising material by the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement and the country chapters of the Palestine Solidarity Movement. There are, they provide very good guides. Mm-hmm. But for ease and to make things very uh, uh, efficient, there is a new application that was, uh, that was designed by a Palestinian from Gaza. Um, uh, our deepest condolences to him because his uh, brother was murdered in an Israeli airstrike on the north of Gaza during this latest uh, assault, Sarah. But he decided to create an app that is based on the awareness raising material by the Palestine Solidarity Movement. Yeah. It says, no thanks. And it's a very simple app because you either you scan the barcode or you enter the name of the company and it automatically tells you very quickly whether it is on the boycott list or it is not on the boycott list. It's a very, very useful app, very, very, very uh, supportive. So my call to people, write down your MPs, continue to demonstrate, boycott Israeli products and companies that are complicit with Israeli atrocities. Not just McDonald's, Burger King and Starbucks. Mm. L'Oreal, Clinique, Estee Lauder, uh, Puma. All of these companies that are complicit. Make use of this application. No thanks, because it provides a very useful tool to to, to be very efficient in the uh, boycott movement. And perhaps most importantly, Sarah, don't forget about Palestine when this last round of assault finishes. Mm-hmm. We, we saw it very often, perhaps mostly after 20, the 2014 assault on Gaza, the massive demonstrations that happened then and then how Palestine was forgotten yet again. There is a need to amplify Palestinian voices because when this assault and there is no guarantees that the occupation and settler colonialism would have ended and ceased yeah. against Palestinians. We need to keep talking about Palestine, amplify Palestinian uh, voices, and continue to exert pressure on our uh, yeah. on our government because it is this sporadic remembrance of Palestine that happens is that what has normalized. Yeah. The, nor, the normal, quote-unquote, Sarah, levels of violence, the structural violence of the occupation that is yeah. perpetrated. 
against Palestinians. If we're going to live up to the values that we say we hold in terms of equality, in terms of human dignity, we should not forget about Palestine once this last round of assault is finalized. Because because if we don't go and address the root causes yeah. of Israeli hegemony and settler colonialism, these things will continue to happen. Do not underestimate the desire of Palestinians for freedom, justice and equality. It is dehumanizing to expect that mm-hmm. of them. Thank you, Tamara. I know it's it's not an easy time, um, but stay in touch. And I really appreciate you giving up your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, everybody, for joining me again. And as I said, we're hoping to focus um, on the ongoing situation in Israel and Palestine from a legal perspective with our special episodes. And we'll have more for you on that coming up. And we'll have more in our regular podcast, providing you with insights into the life of an activist lawyer and their work. I hope you find this year's podcast content interesting, indeed useful and hopefully enjoyable. I would like to extend my gratitude to Jessica, who edits our podcasts, and to Martina, who assists me. Um, And I'd like to take this opportunity to wish all of you a happy Christmas and a peaceful New Year. Thank you. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.